in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6 as we continue our summer series in worship and its impact uh, on our lives. Last week, if, uh, if you uh, were here, you know that we looked at the first half of this chapter. We looked at Isaiah's encounter with God, and this week we're going to kind of move, we're going to revisit that for just a minute, do a quick review, but then we're going to move past that and kind of see where did Isaiah go from that encounter? What effect did it have uh, on his life? I want to begin by asking a, a question, and I'll give you some examples of, of kind of what I'm after. The question is this, what causes a spiritually radical transformation in the human heart? What is it that causes a radical transformation of the human heart? Examples I would give would be this. If you look at the New Testament, what is it that caused uh, Peter to go from uh, a a fearful, trembling, uh, wannabe, but really pretty pitiful disciple of Jesus who who denied that he even knew Jesus. At the very moment that Jesus needed him most, Peter uh, could only muster up enough courage to deny that he, he had ever even met Jesus. What was it that took him from there to, uh, on the day of his death, asking to be crucified upside down instead of right side up because he wasn't worthy enough to die in the same way that his Savior did? What happened? What took uh, uh, a rabbi named Saul, who was one of the smartest, most brilliant, and -and up-and-coming Pharisees, who just had a loathsome hatred for the church of Jesus Christ, to become the Apostle Paul, who literally was the greatest evangelist in the first century church and planted uh, dozens and dozens of congregations all over the near Middle East and even into Europe? What transformed his heart? What happened to the man that, that we now know as St. Augustine uh, that took him from being a womanizing and flanter kind of just low-life guy and a, and a drunkard to boot to a man who was one of the greatest intellects the church has ever known, his writings that we still cherish this day that inform us in a deep way to understand the theologies of Scripture? What happened in his life? What took a, a monk so consumed with guilt and, and shame and anguish that he almost couldn't leave the confessional without thinking of one more thing and rushing back in, lest he fall dead before he get there and be condemned to hell. What moved him to be the man that God used to reform his church, the 15th century? What, what captured Martin Luther's heart that allowed him to reintroduce to the church in a very dark time the biblical theology of salvation by grace alone through faith alone? What happened to a slave trader responsible for shipping thousands of people from the continent of Africa to England and then on to America? What worked in his heart to the degree that John Newton turned his back on that despicable type of life and penned the the, the greatest hymn the church has ever known, Amazing Grace? How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. What happened in the heart and the mind of Charles Colson to take him from one of the most despicable uh, political figures of the 20th century who would use greed and power and uh, influence in all the wrong ways in order to get his way to a man who today, if you want to find Chuck Colson, you better look in a prison because more than likely he's sitting there with someone who has lived a life of crime refusing to leave until he has the opportunity to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with just one more person. 
What causes radical transformation in the human heart? I would say, running the risk of sounding oversimplistic, it is having an encounter with the living Lord God of the universe. On one level or another, it's encountering God for who He is. Now, you might be sitting here saying, okay, well, that would be nice, but I haven't had that experience lately. Is there a plan B? Uh, I like kind of what you're talking about. I I see the examples. I think that transformation uh, and that work in people's lives is is something I would long for, uh, but I don't know that that I've had an encounter with God. Is there any other way? And while I I think that's a normal response, and and it's a response that that, uh, even I've said from time to time, I don't know that I've seen God lately, but I also think it's a response that identifies my tendency and perhaps your tendency to keep God at arm's length, to, uh, to, to be able to control my values and my decisions and my priorities. Because after all, if I get a little bit too close to God, he may want to take everything over and I, I may lose control. So staying at a safe distance is my plan. I'll look kind of religious. I'll look kind of like a Christian, but I won't let it impact my life too much, too too. Uh, far down the road to really affect any uh, serious change. It also allows me from time to time to, to have somewhat of a critical spirit, somewhat of a smug self-righteousness. I can actually sit in judgment of God. So I, I might be guilty of, uh, of saying something like, well, I would never follow a God that would allow people to go to hell. That's not very loving. Or, or I would never follow a God who, who created a world that's in such a mess like it is. That's not very much of a God. And I actually can sit there and, and pass judgment on God. Now, that's convenient, but the question is, is it accurate? (laughs) Do I actually know God well enough to be able to render any kind of judgment, or am I simply kind of staying in a distance, uh, safely uh, away from Him, and yet seeming to be intellectually and spiritually astute? Uh, Let me give you an example of this from a human perspective. We used to have at Green Tree a deal called Party in the Park. Now we do the the 2028 service day, but who's been here long enough to remember Party in the Park? So we used to go over to Kirkwood. Okay, a lot of people. We used to go over to Kirkwood Park in the early summer, and uh, we'd have a picnic, and we'd have a a worship service, and we'd have some games for the kids. And the park ranger would always come by and say, how many people do you have? Because you can only have 350 people at the park. And I'd say... About 350, and then he would, you know, eventually he started counting and found out that we had like 600, so we got kicked out of the park, which led us to do a service project, so that's a good thing. But we were at Party in the Park one time, and I uh, asked Andy Bennis, Andy and his family are uh, members of Green Tree, I said, Andy, why don't you come and just throw a little batting practice to the little kids? Wouldn't that be a lot of fun? And Andy very graciously uh, said he'd do that. He showed up, had a big bag of balls, and so he's out there, you know, and then he'd get the little guys up there, and he'd kind of throw them under, and then some of the older kids, he'd back up and throw some pitches. Well, there was an 11-year-old who was there who was a nephew of a very good friend of mine. And he was a pretty good little ball player for an 11-year-old. He had, he had played Little League ball since he was little. And Andy's kind of lobbing him in there, and this kid's cranking him out. He's, you know, he's going the other way out the right field. He's hitting him down the line. He hit a home run. And after about 10 pitches, I'm not making this up, I was standing right there, this 11-year-old looks out at this unbelievably gifted professional, you know, he's retired, but professional pitcher, and he said, is that all you got? And I'm standing there kind of on the third base side, and Andy looks at me like, and I'm like, go ahead. (laughs) And then I immediately went and walked behind the backstop and stood behind the plate. So Andy walks out into short center field, okay? I guess he walks off about what a major league mound is, and he tells this kid, I'm going to throw you a change up, okay? It's going to come in, and it's going to break across the plate. And he winds up, and he pitches, and I'm watching this pitch, and he didn't throw it awfully hard, but he threw it hard enough. And it's coming right at this kid's head. After about one second, this kid is lying in the dirt. 
at which point the ball breaks and lands right in the catcher's mitt, right? And the kid gets up, he dusts himself off, and Andy looks at it and he goes, I got that too. <laughs> you know, I think sometimes we look out at God and we say, is that all you got? <laughs> and we mistake his patience and his kindness for weakness and lack of interest in our lives. Well, Isaiah saw God in all of his glory. Isaiah had this experience about which I'm talking, this thing that radically transforms the human heart. And, and Isaiah saw God. And what we want to talk about this morning, what we want to see from this passage is what happened. What was the impact that Isaiah felt in his life? What was the result of this encounter? Because much like the, the batter who was laying in the dust, I think we'll find uh, that Isaiah, when he got back up, had a bit of a different attitude. And how would that perhaps apply to you and to me this morning? So Isaiah chapter 6, we're going to read the whole passage. It's only 13 verses. Uh, and as I said, uh, the, the first seven are a review from last week. But hear the word of God. And year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seat, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, that, that's a, a, a fancy word for angels, for, for fiery angels, angelic beings. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their eye ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is, desolate, is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in its stump. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask this morning that your spirit and your word would impact our lives in a powerful and profound way. Father, we need to see the living God of the universe. We need to understand what Isaiah experienced, not so that we can have an intellectual understanding, but so that we would fall to our knees in praise and in worship, and that the transformation that takes place in our hearts would impact every area of our lives. Father, we need it, but I'm not sure if I really want it. 
It's a scary thought. To relinquish all control and to allow you truly to be sovereign, Lord, enraptured by your beauty and your majesty, willing to follow wherever and whenever you lead. Father, I can't explain this well enough. We need your spirit to invade our hearts, to knock down our defenses, to perhaps even this morning make us a bit uncomfortable with your truth so that not only you would receive the glory, but that our hearts really would be changed. And and in that transformation, you use us to impact the world in which we live. So, Father, forgive me for my sin. Don't let me stand in the way of what you want to teach your people gathered here this morning. Father, I thank you that you know everyone and you love everyone according to your perfect plan. And so we ask that you would come and meet with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah saw God in all of his glory. If you go back and you look at verses 1 through 7, which we're not going to take time to put on the screen this morning, you will know or you will see or you will remember from last week that Isaiah has this amazing vision and he sees God for who he is, which also gave Isaiah the opportunity to then do some self-reflection. And as Isaiah saw God's majesty, he saw his glories, he saw his his moral perfection, and then he kind of turned and and looked inward. It's almost like you're at a party and you're looking at everybody and go, oh, am I dressed right? You know, it's almost like Isaiah kind of looked to see how he was dressed and he became emotionally and mentally and spiritually undone. He literally said, woe is me, which means I I, I wish I were dead. Uh, I'm hopeless. I can't stand in the presence of this kind of glory. And so Isaiah was able to correctly see himself in the light of God's majesty. And the outcome was that, that Isaiah had a self-evident, a self-awareness of his sin and his hopeless condition. But then we also saw last week God for who he is. And what the Lord did was he forgave Isaiah his sin. So the angel comes and takes a coal, and, and, and the, the metaphor of fire and burning uh, in Scripture is, is used often for burning away the chaff, burning away what is useless so that only that which is pure remains. And so the picture here is of God's forgiveness. Isaiah, your sins are forgiven. They're atoned for. They're, the, the judgment is paid for. You were unclean, but now because of God's grace, you are clean. And we saw last week that, that God didn't uh, bring Isaiah into the throne room to allow him to, to see his hopelessness and just stay there. God was not you know, trying to squish Isaiah and put him in his place and tell him what a rotten, no good bum he was, but rather he was, he was trying to let Isaiah see himself so that he would repent so that God could display his grace and his forgiveness. So that's Isaiah's up close and personal encounter with the living God. The question we want to look at this morning is what impact did it have in Isaiah's life? Because the impact it had in Isaiah's life ought to be some questions that we ask about whether or not our encounter with the living God is having a similar impact in our lives. And so three things that I think impacted Isaiah from this, uh, from this passage of Scripture. The first one I'm going to call a reckless abandon. Look at verse 8 with me, if you would, for just a moment. He said, I heard the voice of the Lord. So remember, Isaiah, Isaiah saw God right? And he kind of stood off in the distance and and, and he didn't want to draw close because he saw his uncleanness. And then God healed him, right? He restored him. He forgave him. And now Isaiah is drawing close and he hears God. Now he is in relationship with God and, and he hears the Lord say, whom shall I send 
and who will go for us? And then I said, and that transition then I said, as you study that in the, in the original language, it's then immediately. <laughs> there wasn't even a breath. There wasn't even a pause. Nobody had a chance to look around and go, well, who do you think we, you want to go? Maybe I should, you know. Instantly, Isaiah said, here am I, send me. It's the enthusiasm of a, of a child in a classroom, you know. Uh, maybe you can think back to like, you know, second grade or third grade class when the teacher finally asked the question you knew the answer to. You know, up until that moment, you're going, please don't let her call on me. You know, I just, I'm not really sure about geography and I know there's a capital in Missouri, but I'm not sure what it is. But, you know, when she finally asked the question and you knew the answer, what did you do? You know, oh, 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 call on me, call on me. I got it, I got it. And there's an enthusiasm in the heart of a child when, when they get it. And Isaiah has this enthusiasm. He cannot wait to jump in. He can't wait to be the person that gets to get involved in this process. But notice also not, not just enthusiasm, but also notice that there's no clarification asked for. You know, God says, who will go for us? Who should I send? Now, what isn't in that statement? Where are you going? <laughs> What are you doing? What, what's the task? What's the job? That hasn't been explained yet. God simply poses a very general, very generic question, and Isaiah doesn't ask for clarification. He just says, I'm, I'm here. Send me. Please let me be the one to go. You know, when our, our kids were growing up, if I'd go into the house and I'd say, hey, you guys want to go? They would always ask the same question, right? Go where? Because there's a difference between going to McDonald's and getting, you know, some, some McDonald's and a Happy Meal and going outside and raking leaves, right? And, and if you're 12 years old, you need a clarification. Because <laughs> I'm not interested in leaf raking, but if we want to go to McDonald's for a Big Mac, I'm with you. Where do I sign up? Most of us want that clarification, don't we? God, I think I might be willing to go, but tell me a little more. And Isaiah's statement reveals part of the radical transformation that maybe hasn't quite taken place in your heart, in my heart. Because Isaiah never asks for the details. He simply says, I want to be the one who goes. For the would-be prophet, the when and the where and the why was not important. It wasn't even on the radar screen. What Isaiah is saying is, God, I have seen your majesty. I have experienced your grace firsthand. You have forgiven me. I didn't do anything to earn your forgiveness. I, I didn't say, you know, God, I'll try harder and I'll be better. And you said, well, if you do, maybe I'll forgive you. I just came here and all of my, all of my spiritual rags and you forgave me. I've seen your character for what it is. Now I know you. And because I know you, all the rest of it's just details. All the rest of it's just small print. And it really doesn't matter. I want to tell you very briefly this morning about uh, Staff Sergeant Pettis, uh, who was a drill instructor uh, for the Marine Corps, and he may still be, uh, but he was uh, my son Nathan's drill instructor when Nathan went through officer candidate school uh, in the summer of 2003 between his junior and his senior year of college. Uh, And Nathan has, uh, since that time, told us lots of stories about Sergeant Pettis. And Sergeant Pettis is a, 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 an outstanding drill instructor. He knows words that I've never even heard of and has ways of putting them into sentences that really get his point across. And this was a man who for 10 weeks 
nonstop, pretty much screamed at my son and belittled my son and challenged my son in ways that he had never been screamed at before, been belittled or challenged in any way. He pushed him to the limit. And at the end of that 10 weeks, as we got to go and to see that graduation ceremony, uh, Nate pointed out Sergeant Pettis. He said, you see that guy? He said, yeah, he told me a little bit about him. All the stuff he did, all the hard times he gave Nate. He said, you know what, Dad? I'd follow that man anywhere. No questions asked. Really? Why? Because of who he is. You and I will never have a reckless abandon for the God of the universe and his mission if we're concerned with the details instead of being consumed with his presence in our lives. And Isaiah saw God for who he was, and it created within him, I believe, an appropriate, reckless abandon. If God is tamed to us, if we are keeping God at a distance, I want to suggest that we take a closer look. Do we see the God of the universe for who he is? Do we see Jesus in the gospel rebuking demons and and driving the religious crooks out of the temple and, and shouting down storms? And going toe-to-toe with the greatest theologians of his day and silencing every argument that they could possibly muster. Do we see him healing countless sick and, and raising the dead? Are we willing to linger for a few moments at the cross and see the eternal love of God destroy sin and Satan and death for a lost world? For In other words, for you and for me, for all who would believe. I think if we're willing to draw close, we will be tempted to throw caution to the wind and to follow him wherever he leads, whether those are in the the halls of of Kirkwood High School. We've just met Elisa this morning. She's going to be spending countless hours with Brad and our volunteers, with our students, whether it's into our own neighborhoods, whether it's into our offices, whether it's a commitment to to work on a marriage that we think is all but but gone and destroyed, whether it's our our congregation as a church formally, continually sacrificing financially in order to plant other churches around the greater St. Louis area, or whether it's me going one-on-one with a friend who doesn't know Jesus. If we know him well, if we see him for who he is, The small print just isn't important. We will live with a godly, reckless abandonment. My second observation about Isaiah is that he needed to be bracing himself for a wild ride. Look at this assignment that he is given in verse 9 through 11. Uh, After he says, here am I, send me. Then God says, go and say to this people, to the people of your generation, Isaiah, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and they're blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And I said, how long, O Lord? And then he goes on to, to, to work out some of these details. But Isaiah's job description as he was given, and now that we've gotten to the the fine print of the responsibility, is this. His job was to confront 900 plus years of unbelief and stubborn resistance to the will of God with little or no hope for change and pretty much knowing that he was going to, to be exposed to some form of serious persecution. A lot of folks have read this passage and have misunderstood it to God saying, you know what, uh, I'm going to send you to preach, but I'm also, gonna, I'm also not going to let them understand. 
and they've read this passage, and Jesus actually quotes this passage in his ministry when asked why he teaches in parables. And people have, have misunderstood this to mean that God was actually hindering people from coming to faith. God is not hindering people in this passage. He's calling out the situation for what it is. God is identifying to Isaiah as he says, as you're going to go and preach, here's what you're going to encounter. You're going to encounter stubborn, hard, unbelieving, unrepentant hearts. And he is warning this rookie prophet that they will refuse to see. And he uses the metaphor of their eyes, which means they'll refuse to comprehend And they will refuse to hear. They'll refuse to listen. Their ears have become dull. dull. And the idea there is that they won't be able to discern the truth. They will refuse to to discern the truth. But Isaiah, you go and you be faithful to preach my word. Uh, Recent commentary uh, written recently in the early 90s by Jay Moyder. And he writes the following about these verses. He's talking about these verses and also their use in the New Testament. Uh, gives us great concern to interpret them correctly. And he says a simple approach is the best one. How did Isaiah obey God's call? According to the criticism criticism leveled at him in Isaiah 28, verses 9 and 10, which I'm not going to put on the screen, but you can go back and read later, 28, 9, and 10, Isaiah taught with such simplicity and clarity that the sophisticates of his day scorned him as fit only to conduct a kindergarten class. The Isaiah literature as it has come to us bears all the marks of plain, systematic, reasoned approach. It is clear that Isaiah did not understand his commission as one to blind people by obscurity of expression or complexity of the message. He, in fact, faced the preacher's dilemma. If hearers are resistant to the truth, the only recourse is to tell them the truth yet again more clearly than before. But to do this is to expose them to risk of rejecting the truth yet again and therefore of increased hardness of heart. It could even be that the next rejection will prove to be the point at which the heart is hardened beyond recovery. And it was just such a point that Isaiah was called to office. His task was to bring the Lord's word with fresh, even unparalleled clarity. But in their response, people would reach the point of no return. The imperative of these verses must therefore be seen as expressing the inevitable outcome of Isaiah's ministry. And of course, so it turned out to be, as is made clear in chapter 7 through 11, these were the days in which the decisive word was spoken and refused. God is saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, you're going to go into the battle. You need to brace yourself for a wild ride. I think many of us would like to live with that reckless abandon, but we also want to know that it's going to be okay. We also want to know that it's going to be safe. Uh, we were down in, in, in uh, Joplin just the last couple of days, and uh, we went back and forth, you know, right by Six Flags there, and I was riding with Doug Pope, and he was talking about the Batman ride. And, you know, you want to go on the Batman ride, but you want to know you're hooked in, right? <laughs> you know, you got no problem being turned upside down and flipped around, and, you know, and you might, you know, get a little nauseous afterwards. But you want to make sure that whoever put the safety harness knew what he was doing, right? Okay, that, that it's actually going to work. And what God is saying to Isaiah is, you're going to go on a wild ride, and it's going to be scary, and it's going to be dangerous, and it may cost you something. But go anyway and be faithful to the word that I have given you. Who's heeding this call in our generation? Are we enthralled with God's glory and mercy, or are we focused on temporal priorities? 
Do you and I want to be safe or do we want to have a lasting impact? Because friends, I don't think we can have it both ways. I'm not saying that we go out and we shout from the rooftops and we, and we condemn people and, and we purposely look for ways that, that people can attack us, but are we willing to speak God's truth, even in a winsome and kind way, into a generation that, that by and large may reject it? But because we see him and his glory, we're willing to go and we're ready to take the ride. There's a story told about the Elk County Volunteer Fire Department, which is a little bit southwest of Wichita. And there was a wild brush fire just outside of Wichita, Kansas. And all the local fire departments had been called with all their sophisticated equipment. And, and they had shown up and they were trying to, you know, do the perimeter and, and do the fire breaks and get the fire under control. And they hadn't had very much success. And, and come, coming down this dirt road at about 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, sirens blaring, uh, the horn honking, comes this little pumper truck from the Elk County Volunteer Fire Department with the four guys in the truck and the one guy's on the back and he's got the hose and he's, and he's swinging it around. They just drive right into the heart of the fire and they literally put the fire out enough that they get it under control from this little truck that just, this just didn't even, through caution of the wind, it just drove right in there and they had an award banquet with them and they, and they handed them a thousand dollar check at the banquet and thanks for all they did and the volunteer chief stood up and said, we're so grateful for this thousand dollar check. The first thing we're going to do is get the brakes on the truck fixed. <laughs> Friends, let me suggest that you and I are probably way too concerned about our spiritual breaks. <laughs> and we need to be concerned with going into the fire and seeing how God can use us for his purposes. The last point in this passage, not only does Isaiah respond and the outcome is a reckless abandon and embrace himself for a wild ride, but it is also remembering the promise. Uh, verses 11 through 13, the Lord, Isaiah says, how long do we, do we do this? And God says, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant and a house without people and land is a desolate waste. And verses 12 and 13, and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, though just 10% of the people are left, uh, it will be burned again like the terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is it stump? Um, Isaiah says, okay, Lord, I got it. I'm ready to go. Are there any time limitations? And God says, uh, yeah, the time limitation is until the promise is fulfilled. And God gives a twofold promise. And the first one's the bad news and the second one's the good news. The first one is God's fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28. You can't study this passage without studying Deuteronomy 28. So go back maybe sometime this afternoon, this week, and look at Deuteronomy 28, where God says very clearly to the people of Israel as they're coming into the promised land, if you will trust me, if you will be in relationship with me, if you will, if you will honor me, I will keep you in the land, and, and you will have no enemies. I will drive them out before you. You will be my chosen people. And God gives them this incredible promise. And then he says, but if you don't, if you turn your back on me and reject me, you got to go at your own. And let me tell you what happens if you go at your own. You're a little tiny people and you will get run over, and you will be deposed from the land, and other armies will come in and invade you, and you won't have my protection. So choose wisely. And Isaiah comes into the moment in history where God is preparing to act on that promise and to completely remove the people from the land. It didn't happen in Isaiah's day. It actually happened about 130 or 40 years after Isaiah prophesied, but that time was coming. And so Isaiah is sent to say, you know what? I'm going to work at this until the promise that God is a just God is fulfilled. But there's also a second half of the promise, and that's found in the very last sentence. The holy seed is in the stump. 
You see, what's left, the remnant, so to speak, holds the answer because the Messiah, God says in that phrase, the Messiah is coming. The Holy Seed, the one I'm going to send who will put everything to right, he will arrive. And Isaiah and the Apostle Paul and Peter and Augustine and Martin Luther and John Newton and Charles Colson and Green Tree Community Church, you are to be about the work of the kingdom until that day. You are to stand and to see me in all of my glory and to, and to be enraptured by my grace and by my mercy. And then you're to go into a lost and a broken world and share the truth that at times will not be a joyfully accepted truth. Will not, people won't necessarily run up and hug you and thank you so much. Some will. You'll have that experience. Others, though, they'll reject you. But that's not the point. The point is that you represent me. Have you drawn close to God lately? Have you spent time really gazing into his beauty and his majesty and his grace? Have I been captured by his glory and his grace to the point that I'm compelled to live with a reckless abandon and throw caution to the wind and remembering the promises of God step into my community, step into my culture with the only truth that will save and bring hope to a lost and dying world? Only you and I can answer that question for ourselves. Let's pray.